As we continue in worship, uh, please join me in prayer. Father, I thank you, uh, Lord, for your spirit, your word, and your people. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. And thank you for your work in our lives. And I pray this morning as we look at your word, that you give us wisdom and insight and understanding, that you would bless our hearts and change our lives for our good and your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Welcome here. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. We're so glad you're joining us today. Thank you for continuing to intentionally set aside time to worship God in the regular rhythm of life and engage with your family here at Midland Free. We are so thankful for you. Um, One of our family's favorite stories, we have a lot of storybooks, and we're actually starting to put together a little list now because there are so many of them, but one of our favorites is called The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung. Does anybody know this one? All right. All three of us? Two of us? Good. You have something to read when you go home or something to do. Here's your uh, homework assignment. Whether you're an adult or a child, wonderful, excellent book, beautiful story about how God works. And and Kevin DeYoung, I don't know if you know him or not, he's a great Reformed pastor and theologian and writer. He has a whole bunch of kiddos, and so he has learned how kids communicate, and he writes to children. And so it's a really neat way of summing up this big story. And one of my favorite lines in that story is this, when he's talking about Abraham, who Kevin DeYoung says, well, actually, he was called Abram at that time, but everyone remembers him by Abraham. He only had two things going for him. One is God's promise. And two was his belief in God's promise. Boy, what a great line is that. Two things that you need, only two things really, God's promise and your belief in that promise. Today we're going to watch some of God's promises play out and it's more specific than that general promise Abram received to be blessed and multiplied. It's actually specific things that God is going to give you. This is important for you because a lot of times we pray the wrong thing. We pray for stuff that God won't give when there's this huge pile of stuff that he will, but we haven't even asked for it. These are things that you can ask for from God that he promises to give you. Do you want to know what those are? Okay, let's look at Colossians chapter 3 beginning in verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, says this, it says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And here's the overarching umbrella, the rubric that rules it all. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything 
in accordance with the character, person, essence, name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Well, praise the Lord for his word. There it is. Let's see what it has to say to us today. And it starts in, in sort of three steps. And the steps I want to give you are these. Um, grace to us, number one. Number one is grace to us. Number two, God. And number three, grace to others. Three steps. Number one, grace to us. Number two, God. And number three, grace to others. So let's start with grace to us, because realistically, that's probably what most of us are interested in anyways. Grace to us, in chapter 3, verse 12. Let me show you that verse again and show you where I'm getting that. It says, put on then as gods, that's point two. We're come to God and point two. But here's the grace that we received. Chosen, holy, and beloved. These are three things in that pile that God is willing to give us. Our choosing, our holiness, and his love. Chosen, beloved, and holy. So let's talk about the first one, chosen, chosen. Um, This word gets batted around a whole lot in Christian circles because we like to get in a room and argue about, you know, predestination and election and all these things and try to figure out God's sovereignty and humanity's free will. One of the best illustrations I ever heard from one preacher ever was um, they're like two ropes. You know, you got to hold them both. And if you let go of one, you sort of tip the wrong way. You let go of the other, you tip the wrong way too. But if you're getting pulled up by a couple ropes. You've got to hold on to both both humanity's free will and God's sovereignty. Here in this text, what it's emphasizing initially is God's sovereignty, his choosing of us. And that is not a thing to be feared or rejected or ignored, but it is be thankful for. It is a blessing that God in his great grace, in a mystery known but to him before the foundation of the world, chose you. If you are sitting here today, it's very possible that God hand-selected and chose you. Can you believe that? That God chose you? That's what the Bible says. If you're listening to God's word, it means you are more than likely chosen. And that's a big deal because it's not arbitrary. It's intentional. It's hand-selected. It's on purpose that God plucked you from the pile. He picked you out. He set his heart on you and specially selected you to be the object of his love. You are chosen. You are chosen. You are chosen. That's one word. Another one is beloved. You are beloved. That's the next word. Um, This is an important word that preachers talk about a lot. Um, It is the Greek word agape. And why that's a big deal is because there's a few different Greek words and sometimes they make a difference, sometimes they don't. But here I think it does because when we think of love as modern, whatever we are, North Americans, Canadians, Americans, from wherever, whoever, whatever, we think of love as our movies and our music shows us. It is attractive love. It is like eros, erotic. It is the idea that, oh, there is something beautiful or attractive. There is something that will benefit me. That is desirable. Therefore, I want it. I must love it. 
Ooh, I love that. It makes me feel good. It benefits me. I love it. We love what benefits ourselves, and that is called eros. But here, it is not eros. It is, in fact, agape. And the difference is ginormous because where eros says there is something of value and beauty, agape says, hmm, not so much. Agape says, I see something that's unattractive, ugly, not valuable, but I am going to choose to love it and create value. Eros loves because of existing value. Agape creates value by its love. Agape is after the good of the beloved. It invests in the other at the expense of itself. And so when God says that we are beloved, that is absolutely essential to understand in our choosing because he didn't choose us based on some beauty or quality or value or worth. He chose us because he is good and he said, I will give value to them and give them their value and worth. That's why you don't get self-esteem. There's no such thing. There is only esteem that you receive from your creator. Your image is in him. It's not in yourself. You don't want self-image. You want image of God. And so when you understand that, man, the, the, the qualities there, the, the response is but thankfulness and humility. And we'll get to that here in just a second. But here's the big deal. God chose you. He hand-selected you. He picked you on purpose, and he loved you. Not He loved me, not because we're valuable or beautiful, but because by his love, he will create value, and he will create beauty. That's a different kind of love. That's agape. So number one, God, in grace to us, there are a couple things. We see one, we are chosen. Number two, we are beloved. But as many a preacher has said before, God loves you so much, he's not just going to leave you there. Yes, he accepts you as you are, but you don't get to stay that way because you've been chosen and you have been loved for a purpose. And that is to become holy, holy. Now, the idea of holiness, we sometimes think of like, you know, these old paintings with the glowing halos and, you know, weird saints and cupids and other stuff like that. But that is not necessarily the biblical picture. Biblical picture means to set aside for a specific purpose, to to carve out. So you may say, for example, my lazy boy or my armchair is holy. It is set aside for my use. It's got like my body imprints in it. Anybody else sits in that chair and messes it up. Don't do that. It's set aside. It is mine. It is holy. It is just right for death. God has set you aside for himself, not for anything else. Often we chase after other things, and that's why it's a defilement, because we're chasing after something other than we've been set aside for. But God has set you aside for himself. He has made you holy for him to be conformed in the image of his son. And as a result, you're gradually becoming more and more holy every day. And he is so confident that he will accomplish his purpose that he can call you that now. I would probably never call me that. I wouldn't walk in and say, hey, I'm holy. (laughs) You're holy too. Hey, you're holy. (laughs) 
If we're honest, we're like, I'm not so sure. But look what Paul did. He wrote to these people and said, you are holy. Could he write to Midland Free today and say, you are holy? The answer is yes. Yes, he could. If you believe in Jesus, then his blood is more powerful than your sin. And even though you sin greatly, it's not enough to cancel out all the holiness that Christ provides at the cross. His holiness is more than all our sin. His death is more effective. His resurrection is more powerful than all of my sins. Amen. Thank you. Praise the Lord. What is going on here, people? I hope you feel this, is what we're saying, is that Jesus loves you. And that's a big deal. You are chosen, you're holy, and you're beloved. Chosen, holy, and beloved. That is God's grace to us. Now, that's number one. We are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved. Start there. God's grace to us. But it doesn't stop there. It next moves from us to others. But before we jump into us to others, we need to do a little gut check here and say, okay, wait. God calls me holy. I don't feel holy. God calls me beloved. I don't always feel beloved. Um, Hmm. How does this work? Well, don't forget that first word. God. God says this. You know, it's one thing if I say this. It's one thing if another person says this. But this is God saying this. Here's the thing about God. He can do anything. Which includes making you and me holy. And that's a miracle. Amen? Ours a miracle. Well, look here. God is the basis or foundation for this. If you think about, for example, a promise that you get from someone else, or maybe a work commitment. Oh, yeah, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Sure, yeah, we're all in. Are they going to follow through? (laughs) No. They just affirmed you to their face and walked away and did whatever they wanted on their own. (laughs) You know that's not true. But there's some people, there's some who may not be as quick to affirm, but if they say yes, boy, you better believe they mean it. They may not have all the cute, soft salesman tricks or whatever, but that's a person of their word, and that's someone you can count on, that's someone you can rely on. If you died today, and they told you the other day, they'd still get it done by tomorrow, even though you're dead and gone. That's the type of person you can trust. Well, guess which one God is more like? He's that one you can trust. His character is such that he is good, And he is faithful. And we need his goodness because we need that mercy and grace and love. But we need his faithfulness because in order for us to get from a point where we want to give grace to others, we really got to believe that he's going to give grace to us. Because if I'm going to give it away, I'm hoping there's still more coming. But if I give it away and there's not, then I'm all out. I can't give away forgiveness if I don't expect to be forgiven. I can't turn the other cheek if I think it's on me to make things right. But if I'm trusting in somebody else to do the judging, if I'm trusting in them to do the vindication, if I'm trusting in God to do what he would say he was, which is to vindicate the righteous and punish the wicked, then I can let it go. If I really believe it's God and who he says he is, that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, faithful, and good, then I can leave it in his hands. 
But if he's not that way, then I better watch out and do it myself because there's no guarantee this is ever going to happen. What this means is if I lose in court and I go to jail and I am innocent but I'm punished even though I can believe God will actually vindicate me and reward everything that went wrong. Even when justice is not served on earth, we trust that justice will be served in heaven. No matter what. This is so good and so assuring. It frees us to truly forgive and give God's grace to others. So number one is grace to us. And number two is God. Just the point of God. Like who he is. Because if he is who he is, says he is, we can trust him. If he's not, there's no reason to go on with the rest of the sermon. We should stop here. But if he is, then we can show grace to others as well. Grace to others. And grace to others begins with humility ourselves. Humility. Um, James 4, 6, you can write that down, look it up later. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a big deal. Like, if you want to be in good with God, let me assure you, you want to be humble. If you think you're all that and you can do whatever you want and accomplish it on your own, you're not going to get very far with him because he knows better than that. And he'll let you fail. But if you recognize that you are a fallen human being, sinful flesh, in need of a Savior, and come with repentance before him, he will honor that. And he will bless it. Humility, then, is not what our world thinks of, because our world thinks of humility as self-deprecating or, you know, woe is me, I'm no good, blah, blah, blah. That's not humility. That's disparaging God's image in his creation, and that is not right. Instead, here's a better definition of humility according to David Walls and Max Anders. They say, humility is not a poor self-concept that shouts, I'm no good, I'm not worth anything, I don't deserve a thing. Instead, humility is honest, straightforward awareness of the strengths and gifts as provided by God and a grateful attitude for him. It's also in the same breath an awareness of the areas of weakness and need and desire to grow in these areas and a willingness to receive assistance with those needs. Said more succinctly, Edmund Clowney says, it is res- humility is respecting God's ordering of our lives. Respecting God's ordering of our lives. If you're on the way towards a midlife crisis, hear this, this is for you. You know, maybe you're looking back in the rearview mirror and thinking about all the things you wish you could have done different and shoulda, woulda, couldas, and now here you are, and I wonder why, and wonder this, and wonder that. Here's the thing. If you go back and you point at God, and you say, God truly is sovereign. If God truly is good, if God truly is everywhere all the time, in my past, present, and future, then God knows what he's doing, and where I'm at is where I'm at, and that's where he wants me. And so here I am. And Lord, I may have messed up in the past. I may have pulled on one lever a little too hard, like my will and not yours, and got him out of balance at times and zigzagged along the way. But today and from this moment forth, what would you have me do? Lord, I want to respect your ordering of my life. Now, I want to be honest about it, too. Realistically, if I have two paths to choose, I know which one I want. It's the easy way. 
That's the comfortable way. It's the well-clad, nicely clothed, everything goes right, sky is sunny and blue all day long. But the reality is I know that the best way is not always that way. More often it's the valley of the shadow of death and the narrow road. And I really do want to get to the right spot. And so that means I really do have to take the right road. But I don't always think I have the personal strength to take it on my own. And so, Lord, will you please guide my steps? Will you please accomplish your will? In a way, that's what you hear Jesus saying in the garden in Mark chapter 14. When he's praying, he knows he's going to be crucified. He's already told his disciples multiple times, this is what's going to happen. And yet, it's still not a comfy road. So Jesus prays honestly and openly and says, Abba, Father, all things are possible. So remove this cup from you. Yet, uh, not what I will, but what you will. That's humility. That's humility. Mary does the exact same thing when she finds out she's going to be ostracized and alienated and shamed and embarrassed in front of her community. Mary, the mother of Jesus, says, Behold, Lord God, I am your servant Let it be to me according to your word. You see, when you really believe who God is, when stuff happens, you kind of submit to it. And you accept it. And you go with it. And trust that somehow it fits within God's sovereign plan for your life. This is that thing that we call meekness. One of the other qualities mentioned here. Meekness is described as, here's a definition, That temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing. This is what I've chosen for you, says your heavenly father. Accept it. It's from me. When you do, it's actually a weight and a burden that's lifted. And you come to a point of humility, not despair. But humility that Andrew Murray describes like this, he says, humility is a perfect quietness of heart, is expect nothing to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is be at rest when nobody praises me, when I'm blamed or despised, is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my father in secret and I'm at peace as in a deep sea of calmness And all around and above is trouble. That's humility. We need to get there if we're going to do any of these other things. God's grace to us inspires that. When we think this holy, almighty, infinite, humongous God hand-selected and chose us and set his affection on us and loved us and set us aside to be holy, how else can we respond? Wow, Lord, not my will but yours. I don't know why <laughs> I don't know why you did that. We'll take it. Lord, do your thing. That's humility. And humility leads to these other graces. I don't want to leave those out. Um, some of these lead to the others. I'm not going to camp on every single one just like I did last week with all the sins. But there's a few others that I want to point out too. One of the big ones in verse 13 is um, uh, 
not verse, yes, verse 13, forgiving, forgiving. Now, we know that it's important to forgive, and we've heard that Jesus says, you know, forgive 70 times 7, and forgive as I've forgiven you. And there's a lot of words in the New Testament for forgive, but this is an important one. It's important because it's less frequent, and so it's intentional. It's not the common word. And the word here for forgive is charizomai, charizomai. And you've probably heard of someone who has a charismatic personality. It's where we get this word charis, charis, or grace. Your name could be charis, or your name could be grace. It means the same thing. So here is this word charismai, which is like to graceify, but it's not just to graceify. It is to bestow grace. It is to unconditionally give favor. In my mind, when I think of a picture of this, the picture that comes to mind is like Queen Elizabeth knighting someone. This person kneels before her and she bestows upon them a new name and a new title. And as a result, their life is forever changed. They are now knights. They are knighted. You will always call them Sir So-and-so from then on out. It is a complete investment in the other. It is to charismai. And this goes completely, perfectly, intentionally with the word agape. When we see something that is unlovable and we choose to invest in it and create value, then the next natural response is to charismai or bestow favor upon it. And that's exactly what God did for us. And that is why, based on who we are, we should act in the same way. To bestow grace unconditionally, unconditionally, but intentionally, proactively, first, to bestow favor. And then the next one is patience, patience. Now, um, this patience is quickly and easily connected to charisma because if you don't forgive somebody, it's going to be really hard to be patient with them. You know, if they keep doing the same thing over and over again that you're already mad at them for, it's only going to make you more mad. But you have to forgive them ahead of the fact before they offend you. That way, when they do offend you, you can be forgiving and patient. But yet, again, I remind you, there is great security in the sovereignty of God. If God calls us to turn the other cheek, we can turn it because we know it's not on us to hit back. He himself will vindicate the righteous and punish the wicked. And if that is the case, you can turn the cheek and keep turning it and keep turning it and keep turning it and trust that the Lord will make it right. Charisma, patience, forgiving. Next is bear with, bear with. It's very similar in these, but they all kind of flow together. You forgive, you're more patient, you bear with. Um, I kind of like this word bear with because it's like you have two options. You can either bear with them or blast them, you know. Oh, that's it, buddy. (laughs) I've been counting. We just hit 70 times 69. You're about to hit 70 times (laughs) 7. And you're going down. (laughs) And then when they come, boom, you blast them. Well, this is different than that. This is like God would do for us and like we want from him. And this is to bear with. And I want to give you five ways that you can bear with, which I think you can remember pretty easily. Let me show you the slide. You'll see my not-so-funny joke. This is an acronym called THINK. And if you're tempted to blast somebody and just let them have it and give them a piece of your mind, stop and think. 
This comes from Alan Redpath's Passion for Preaching. And um, the acronym is these five letters. Each of them stands for something. Even if you get two or three, you'll still be way better off, even if you don't get all five, okay? But let me just show you the five. The five are T-H-I-N-K, think, is it true? T, is what I'm about to say true? You might, oh yeah, this is true, boy, it's coming, here we go. No, wait, 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 hold on. Is it helpful? Is it helping that person? Or am I just saying it because really I want an admission? for them to admit that they're wrong, for them to say they're sorry that they hurt me, and then to ask forgiveness and apologize to me. That's helpful to me. That would help me feel better. I'm not sure if that helps them. Is it helpful? Think. Is it true? Is it helpful? H, is it inspiring? It's really cool if you can motivate them to be better than what they are and not just drag them down, discourage them. Is it necessary? Does this really have to happen Is this just a one-off, no big deal, it'll go away? Or is this very important for the long-term success of our relationship? If it's important for the long-term success of your relationship, have that difficult conversation. By all means, when you're ready, when you're in the right place, when they're in the right place, have it. Don't let it simmer. You don't want to boil and explode in anger. That was last week. You want it to be quenched. But think carefully. Choose your battles. Is it necessary? And finally, K... Is it kind? Is it kind? If you just get T, H, and K, you're probably doing great. If you just get, is it helpful? Is it true? Is it kind? You're good. But if you can just take a moment, if I can just take a moment, let me assure you, I'm not perfect. You've known me long enough. I don't always do this. Think is hard. When your mind's going fast and your tongue is racing, out it comes sometimes before you, whoa, hang on. Not what we want. Stop. this helpful? Is this helping them? Is it true? Is it helpful? Bear with, bear with. And the last one here is love. And I think I've kind of camped on that again, but it's interesting that at the beginning, we are God's beloved. And then at the end, it says, above all this, put on love. I mean, God loved us. He first loved us. So we should Love others. And the way he does it is by creating value in us, by bestowing grace upon us. You see, it's grace to us from God and then grace to others. Love, it's the same word, agape, create value in others. The goal is the good of the other person. The goal is the good of the other person. So those are three for today. I know that that is simple, but I also know that it is hard. And let me remind you before we quit what they are. God's grace to us, God, and grace to others. To get ready to close, our instrumentalists will be coming up here in just a second. Let me read this passage to you one more time. As you go throughout your week, I encourage you to dwell on it and think about it. Not just what we're supposed to do, but what God has done to us. As a result, we are enabled to do for others. Grace propels grace. Colossians 1, sorry, 3, verse 12 and following. It says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, charismai, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on agape, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, do it all in word or deed, in direct correspondence, in the exact nature, in the image, or in keeping with the character of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To him be the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your grace to us. Your grace to us is the only way we can be gracious to anyone else. Lord, if you didn't save me, I would have no hope, no chance, no life. You gave yours for mine, and for that we are thankful. We fully admit, Lord, and we call out and praise in humility and thanks. Thanking you, Lord, that your love has changed everything. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let's stand together and sing one of those spiritual songs with